Well, good morning. It's always uh, great to be back. I was really impressed as we pulled up and I saw a parking spot with my name on it, so <laughs> must be getting to be a regular. But really looking forward to it. I have a, a, a different talk today, but it's going to be very useful. It is Palm Sunday, next Sunday is Easter. And as I've traveled around, I've realized that a lot of Christians know a fair amount about Jesus. His birth, his life, miracles, death, resurrection, his return. And then in addition, they know some really cool Old Testament stories. Daniel in the lion's den, you know, Jonah and the whale, parting the Red Sea, just kind of cool stuff, but they don't really have any clue how all that fits together. They don't know if Moses and Abraham were next-door neighbors, did they work at Wendy's together, they just, you know... Stuff happens, and then Jesus shows up. And when we try to share our faith with others, and we just tell them they need to place their trust in Jesus Christ, that's a good message, but we're kind of jumping in the middle of the story. And we haven't given the background of that. Like, okay, why is this Jesus thing? You know, maybe I need help, but why Jesus? Why not the Book of Mormon? Why not about something else? Why can't I just be good? We, we don't always share that because we don't really understand the big picture from creation to Christ. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. If we can get my PowerPoint up, um, we're going to be doing creation to Christ, the Old Testament in a nutshell. So I normally talk fast, and today I'm going to be covering 100 years of history every 60 seconds <laughs> because we're going to go through the entire Old Testament, and we're just going to be hitting the big picture, the, the major events, and kind of what Paul Harvey used to do, he would tell you the rest of the story. So we're going to, you know, we're certainly thinking about Jesus here, but people need to know the rest of the story, like what led up to it. And that's what Paul Harvey did most of the time. He'd talk about something that seemed really familiar, and all of a sudden at the end he reveals who it was, but now you know the rest of the story, what led up to this person's fame or whatever it is. And so we're going to be giving the background to Jesus Christ arriving. And long before Jesus was Savior, he was creator, actually, in John chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, for him, by him, through him, all things were created. So we're going to give you the big picture so when you're done, you won't be quite as intimidated with the Old Testament. It's just, it's one story, one continuous story all the way through with one theme, and that is the arrival of Jesus Christ, which begins the New Testament. So that's where we're headed. Um, We're not going to take time to do this, but what I've done in a smaller setting often is I've given out a, a sheet of paper with a timeline on it with a picture of the earth on one side and a cross on the other side just like that, and then I would list all these people and events, and I'd say, okay, just take the numbers and put them up on the timeline in approximate, you know, relative distance of where where they occurred. You know, were they close together, farther apart? You can put them in order on the line, and it's interesting to watch people as they fumble through, and they're like whispering to each other, and like, I don't know, when did the flood happen, and was that after Abraham, or like Daniel? You just, you realize you don't know. And I say, turn them in. Don't put your names on it. Just turn them in. And I look at it, and just the stuff's all over the board, (laughs) which shows me that they don't know. And some of these people have been going to church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's like, how come we don't understand the big picture of the Old Testament more? You know, some people do, but most Christians just don't. They they couldn't flow you through the Old Testament from creation to Christ in a minute or two or five minutes. They're just like, well, yeah, there was a creation, and... Adam and Eve and stuff, and then I'm not quite sure there's Moses and then Jesus. You know, talk about Jesus. So we're going to be going through this. Again, we're not going to take the time, but when you were done, you would have all the numbers up there. This is actually not the solution, but you know, when people are done, they would have all the numbers there, and we'll actually look at the solution at the very end here. A couple disclaimers with this particular talk. Uh, I reserve the right not to answer questions related to any of the following Old Testament characters. <laughs> It's a little bit of humor. I'm not the world's leading expert in the Old Testament. I'm probably the second from, from the bottom. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I, I know a fair amount about it, but I, I don't know all the names. You know, probably nobody does. But we're not going to be going through all those details because we've got to get through the whole thing. Second thing is all dates presented in this lecture are approximate and subject to change without notification and even without any particularly good reason. <laughs> Here's the point with that. Don't get hung up on any particular date. Just get an idea if two things happen really close together or, in a sense, miles apart. Just the the relative timing of things. Because scholars will argue whether it was 1521 B.C. or 1532 B.C. I don't care. Just get a general idea of the flow of all this as we go through. So before we had Old Testament history, we're just going to look at a timeline of, of world history of everything. And we have the creation of the earth 
4,000 BC, that's 6,000 years ago. I know the alarms are going off already. I've given a series of talks on this. We're not going to be focusing on that too much. I'll get back to that briefly in just a second. And then we have 2000 BC, Christ shows up. We will call it zero. I know there's no year called zero for even 2000 increments here. And then the 2000s of modern technology. That's the timeline of world history. And now the elephant in the living room, which is one of those things that everyone can see but no one's talking about. Well, that's the whole you know, date of creation and age of the earth thing. So I'm going to address this very, very briefly. And this is my ministry's position on this particular subject. I believe in a literal six-day creation. Those days of creation in Genesis were literal solar days. And it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't hundreds of millions or billions of years ago. Um, I've been researching this biblically and scientifically for 37 years, so that means I am right about everything I believe. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. It just means I should have an opinion by now. If I don't have an opinion, something's wrong. So you're going to hear my opinion. But I would just challenge everyone here, study Scripture for yourself and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into truth. Don't put your trust in me or any other expert. And realize if you're saying, well, it must be this certain way because of radiometric dating and these physicists and experts, my background is physics and engineering. Um, but if you say, well, you've got to believe them, then what did people do for most of history when we didn't have science? We didn't have radiometric dating and all that. Did they just get it wrong because God's like, oh, I didn't really mean what I said. But, you know, once you have radiometric dating, you'll, you'll realize it meant something completely different. And so I'm just going to tell you why after 37 years, I'm more confident than ever that there are regular days and it really couldn't have been that long ago. Biblically speaking, um, we have one of the biggest issues. If you happen to believe that, well, you know, God used something like the Big Bang and maybe even evolution, and a lot of religious people do, most religious people do, and a lot of Christians even do. So I'm sure there are people here today who just come in and figure, well, you know, they've proven the Big Bang and someone had to start it, so God did it, doesn't matter. Uh, but this is one of the big problems. If God used the Big Bang, that means the earth is what they tell us, 4.6 billion years old, and all the layers in the earth accumulated over hundreds of millions of years of earth history. That's, you know, that's, we just kind of buy into that. That was God's process. Okay, well, these, these layers you know, are filled with dead things, fossils or remains of dead things. So if that was God's process, the Big Bang and all that, then things were living and dying and eating each other and bacteria eating the eyes of other creatures and cancer and tumors, all that going on for hundreds of millions of years as God is forming the earth. And then when it's done, God plants a garden on top of the whole thing, puts Adam and Eve in it, and they're saying, all oh, this is such a perfect world, it's paradise. No, it's not. You're living on top of a graveyard of billions of dead things. So when Adam and Eve sinned, that didn't bring death into God's perfect creation. Death had been around for hundreds of millions of years. It's not their fault. If it's not their fault, Jesus Christ wasted his time dying on a cross because death and disease and suffering is not our fault. That was here before Adam was even on the planet, even though Romans 5.12 says it was by Adam's sin that brought death into the world. So this is one of the biggest issues that there is with trying to squeeze some of those secular ideas into Scripture. Um, also, no global flood. Most Christians who believe God used the Big Bang and maybe even evolution, I say, well, do you believe in global flood? Oh, of course. I said, you can't. <laughs> because if the earth formed over hundreds of millions of years by natural processes and all these layers in the Grand Canyon and Mount Everest... And then you have Adam and Eve. And then 1,700 years later, you have Noah. You can't have a global flood because the earth is done. You've got all the layers already. You've got all the mountains and canyons and things. So if there was a global flood at that point, it would have filled in Grand Canyon. It would have made more mountains and all that. But that didn't happen since Grand Canyon and all that. So you have to say, well, it was just a local flood, which doesn't line up with Scripture or with science. And then that means that Adam was not here from the beginning. Jesus Christ, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he said, haven't you read... I thought you were the experts in Scripture. Haven't you read that he who created them, he created them male and female from the beginning of creation? If God used a Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, and modern man, they tell us, showed up 200,000 years ago, that puts Adam and Eve at the very end of the whole timeline. But if God created everything in six days, and they were created on the sixth day, you know, six, close to 6,000 years ago, that puts Adam and Eve the first week of the whole creation that's at the very beginning, just like Jesus said. So that's just scratching the surface there. 
Scientifically, there are no clocks in nature, not a single clock in nature. All we have are processes. And when you make assumptions about the processes, you can turn them into clocks. But if your assumptions are wrong, your clocks are way off. And that's the whole thing behind radiometric dating, which I'm skipping for now. And even if you look at all the processes that are out there, and even if you make all the assumptions they want to make, which aren't good assumptions, still 90% of these processes yield ages that are far too young for a Big Bang or evolution. And then there's a lot of scientific evidence for youth, and I'll get into one very briefly later. It's kind of cool, related to dinosaurs, actually. So, But i got to keep moving. Main points are these. Uh, we didn't have science for most of history, which I mentioned already. Don't trust any experts, including me. Uh, have your own Holy Spirit-led opinion. You know, Study Scripture and say, God, what does this say? based on your own studying and prayer, and then don't break fellowship over this issue. You know, you find out someone believes different than you, that's fine. Just continue to encourage them to be in Scripture. You can both do that, and God will refine both of you. So with that, we get back to the timeline here. The Old Testament was written roughly 1500 to 400 B.C., New Testament roughly 40 to 100 A.D. That's where it fits on the entire timeline. So we are going to take a look at Old Testament history this morning. We're going to do it actually in two parts uh, we're going to take look up to Abraham and then Abraham on forward. This is the big timeline. We're going to cover all of this really quickly, but that's the entire Old Testament right there. We're going to start out with part one, going from creation up to about 2000 BC, which is just prior to Abraham showing up. So the creation, again, I'm going to be like really brief. I'm performing a miracle here because I love talking about creation, but God creates everything in six days right at the very beginning. One side note, the, the dinosaurs where do they fit in? Most Christians, they just don't know where to stick a dinosaur in the Bible. You don't stick a dinosaur in the Bible. Why do I say that? Because it makes it sound like a problem, like I don't know where to put him. What you do is you understand the timeline of, of the Bible and the Old Testament history, and it can tell you exactly where they fit in. God says he created everything in six days. Dinosaurs are part of everything. So they must have been created in those six days. He said he created the land creatures on day six. Dinosaurs are land creatures. They must have been created on day six. When you study scripture, and I have a whole series on this, you learn a lot more. Really quick, two, two summers ago, I did a dinosaur excavation out in western Colorado. This is me digging up a femur from a Camarasaurus. If you don't know what those look like, they're 66 feet long, 44,000 pounds. If I were to stand next to one, which I wouldn't, and I wouldn't be wearing yellow, um, that's just for scale, what they look like. <laughs> Why were we digging them up? We were looking for evidence of soft tissue and red blood cells in dinosaur bones. What's going on with that? Well, a number of years ago, secular scientists discovered soft tissue and red blood cells in dinosaur bones. It shouldn't be there. They say, well, they can't be there. They're 65 million years old. Well, that's what they believe. They can't be 65 million years old. She did her experiment 17 times because she wouldn't believe it. She finally concluded, this is soft tissue and red blood cells in dinosaur bones. That's part of a whole other talk. Let me show you a short video. You are about to see soft tissue from a dinosaur that stretches and snaps back. It is fascinating. If I were able to show that to you, <laughs> let me back up a bit. Um, what I'm going to have you do, if you can touch that picture, it should have triggered with this, but it didn't work. So here we go. Soft tissue from a dinosaur. Does that look 65 million years old? <laughs> Those materials don't last more than a few thousand years. Stretches and snaps back. We got red blood cells. We even have DNA now from dinosaurs. There's no way those materials last that long. This is evidence that they were buried in a flood about four and a half thousand years ago. So we're digging up bones. In fact, these materials are being sent over to the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom. Amy and I are going there in August to do a, like a 10 day speaking tour. Uh, but it's fascinating. So dinosaurs, according to scripture, created in the creation week because God created everything in those six days. And I've got a three-part video series, a DVD series out on the table out there. So we're going to put them right back at the beginning, the whole creation thing and dinosaurs, right at the beginning because that's what Scripture tells us. There's a lot more to it with dinosaurs, but i got to keep moving. So the fall of Adam and Eve. You've got God creating everything, Adam and Eve in the garden. It's perfect. When did they fall? Some people say, well, I believe the earth is billions of years old, and so God created Adam and Eve, and they were in that garden for millions and millions of years, and then maybe they fell, and so you can have an old earth. That doesn't work. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when they fell, but it does tell us that God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and have children. They didn't do that until after they fell and were out of the garden. 
You can't have them living in the garden for millions of years not having children. They would be disobeying God the whole time. That would be sin. <laughs> so most likely they sinned you know, shortly after the creation week, got kicked out, and then had you know, children shortly after that. So they fell probably shortly after. We don't know exactly when. It could have been a few days. could have been a few weeks, maybe a few months. But it doesn't make any sense to say even a few years because the whole time they would have been disobeying God and his command to be fruitful, multiply. So we put the fall right back at the beginning as well in our timeline. And this is the most important thing, the solution to the fact that they messed up and messed up for everyone. And we mess up today. The solution for their sin was this, the first prophecy in the entire Bible. I will put enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's, again, talking about Satan attacking Christ, and he ends up being crucified, but ultimately Christ rises again, and he will crush Satan's head. So that's the solution. That's the thread that's going to flow through the entire Old Testament. What's interesting is we don't know a lot of detail from that point when they fell and got kicked out of the garden and had Cain and Abel and stuff. From about that point up until the time of the flood, we don't really know a lot other than it got really, really bad, so bad that God decided to send a flood in judgment. Genesis chapter 6, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So we've got the flood almost 1,700 years after the original creation account. That's when it got so bad, God said, time's up. I'm judging this planet. I'm going to wipe them all out. But fortunately, no one is wife, Joan of Arc. Um, and their three sons and their... We've, all right, sorry. And their three sons and three wives were spared on the ark and then repopulated the earth. With There's a lot of really cool genetics behind that. i got to skip. Uh, genetics show that we restarted repopulating about 4,500 years ago, and there seemed to be three groups of genetics on the planet. you got three sons and three wives. It's just it's really cool, but i got to skip that because that's a different talk. So we have the ark, and we do not want to depict the ark this way, but many you know parents and churches and stuff innocently do this I, I totally get it. it's fun for the kids to play with these these models but at some point you got to tell them all no okay that it's, oh, it really wasn't like that because you can't get two of each kind of animal on a little boat like that's impossible so also what you taught me wasn't true like well not really because it's something else okay well, what about jesus maybe that wasn't true either so we should really depict it more accurately right from the beginning this thing at over two million cubic feet of storage space massive some of you probably have been to the Ark replica they have in Kentucky. It's really cool to actually go through it and see this is it would have been something very much like that. Here's evidence that there really was a flood, first biblically. Clearly it teaches that in Genesis 6 through 8. You read that, it is a global, worldwide, catastrophic event, not a local flood. Jesus took it literally, and Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, this was a prophecy from about 2,000 years ago. Peter predicted in the last days these skeptics are going to doubt the return of Christ. Why? Because they're going to reject the creation account and they're going to reject the flood. That was predicted 2,000 years ago. Today, every single secular scientist rejects the Genesis creation account and they reject the Genesis flood. Sadly, many Christians reject the Genesis creation account and the flood. Oh, we know God's the creator, but he didn't do it the way it says there because we know better now because we got astrophysics and we got radiometric dating and on and on. So we're going to interpret it differently because we're so smart now. So we even reject that. And the flood couldn't have been a global flood because secular geologists don't believe it, so we shouldn't either. So when we read God's word, it sounds like a global flood, but it must have been just this local thing because we know better. Peter predicted that 2,000 years ago. Scientifically, we have marine sea creatures fossilized on top of mountains. Mount Everest, five and a half miles high, has sea creatures fossilized on it. How is that possible unless the mountains were lower in the past covered with 22 and a half feet of water like the bible says and at the end of the flood psalm 104 the mountains rose up out of those waters which had sediments deposited upon deposited on them with sea creatures that's how you have fossils of sea creatures and mountain ranges all over the planet sedimentary layers and canyons all over the world these massive massive stretches of sedimentary layers that were laid down catastrophically by water you got them all over the planet and you have about three hundred canyons all over the planet because there was a worldwide flood and billions of fossils in these things. The flood came and buried a lot of living things. And those are the ones that fossilized and we dig up today. 
have a four-part study on the Genesis flood, goes into a lot more detail there. And we have plate tectonics. There's a lot of evidence. There was one large landmass like Pangaea, and it was broken up catastrophically during the flood. I mentioned when I skipped my background this morning because most of you already already know me, but I'm on the board of a group called Logos Research Associates. I'm uh, vice president right now. Uh, the former vice president who's still on the board is Dr. John Baumgartner, PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Even secular geologists use that, and his model shows that this the continent was broken up catastrophically in a short period of time during the flood, not slow continental drift over hundreds of millions of years. There's no mechanism that could do that, but the flood would have torn it apart, and that's what we see. Side note, I lead tours of the Grand Canyon. Uh, they're really cool. We actually spend one day rafting the river, so you'd be on a raft here going on the river. It's the scale here. It's about 1,100 feet down there, and we go around. It's smooth sailing. It's not whitewater rafting. We spend one day walking along the rim on the Kaibab limestone, looking one mile down to the Colorado River, uh, giving talks all along the way, explaining these layers and how it could only be carved out by a worldwide flood. There's no way the Colorado River carved out that canyon. That's part of another talk. I got to keep going. We stop and see dinosaur footprints. You can walk right on them on an Indian reservation. We also have a cool photo op. The whole group gets off the bus and we stand under this rock before it falls over and uh, get a picture taken. It's pretty cool. Some people stay later. I did that once with my sister and brother-in-law. They went on one of my trips and I took his picture in Antelope Canyon, which is in that same area. If you're interested, we have a flyer out here that gets you some more information. Uh, one of the simplest things you can do is if you would like to coordinate a trip through the church and get a group of people, if you get enough people, like let's say 35 people, I, we can pick a custom date that works for you and for myself. And for every person that signs up, Pastor Bob gets $50 off. So if you even had 20 people, that's $1,000 off, which is more than the cost of the trip. So he can quit his day job and just go on trips with me. So, But it's a really cool thing. We love it when pastors can go with their congregation because you will be so fired up in your faith. It's not just about looking at the canyon itself. It's about seeing, wow, there really was a worldwide flood, just like the Bible says. I don't have to be embarrassed about it. I'll say, bring it on, because there's so much evidence. I give talks about creation and evolution. Uh, how do we know the Bible is the inspired word of God? I help parents you know, relate with their children and mentor them more all throughout the trip. So back to the talk, so we don't forget. <laughs> the Ice Age. This is one of those things where a lot of Christians, they don't know what to do with the Ice Age. Did it really happen? Did it not? Should we reject it because it's not in the Bible? And it's... There really was an ice age, a lot of evidence for it. And so we'll talk about this briefly. The secular scenario with ice ages is they say that there were multiple ice ages over millions and hundreds of millions of years. They really don't know what causes an ice age because cooler oceans won't provide the snow to make ice. They say the earth gets cooler and cooler and cooler. In fact, in 1975, they were worrying about the next coming ice age. So we were all in the global cooling. That didn't work, so they went to global warming. That didn't work, so they went to climate change. So any change at all now is bad, and we're causing it. But they talked about the earth slowly getting cooler, and we go into an ice age. It's impossible. You cool the earth down, you cool the oceans down. If you cool the oceans down, you don't get precipitation. If you don't get precipitation, you can't have snow. If you don't have snow, you can't have ice. Cooling the earth down will not cause an ice age. You'd have to somehow warm up the oceans, but have the land masses cool down. How could that possibly happen? Well, actually, the Bible explains all that. During the floods, the oceans were greatly warming. You had the great fountains of the deep opening up. You have magma and lava being released, great and plate tectonics, greatly heating up the oceans. You also have volcanic debris um, being spewed out on the land, blocking out sunlight. So now when the sun comes down, it doesn't get all the way through. The land masses are cooling down, but the oceans are warming. Isn't that interesting? And then snow falls because you got precipitation, but because it's cold, it comes down to snow, and it keeps accumulating into ice sheets until the oceans start to cool down again after the flood, and then the ice that built up, about 30% of the earth was covered with the ice, it melts back to where it is today. Someone we're seeing melting today, it's not because of global warming. It's just settling out from the flood about four and a half thousand years ago. So the Bible is the only thing that can actually explain the Ice Age. It was triggered by the flood, and we guess it lasted about 700 years based on calculations of how long would it take for the oceans to cool back down. So then we have the Tower of Babel, which happened during that Ice Age period. And you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, now the whole world had one language and one speech. 
And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad uh, there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased uh, building the city. So I'll get to this in just a second. So they come off the ark. Eight people, six of which the sons and the wives were going to repopulate. Um, and God said, spread out over the earth. The rest of the earth is empty. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They rebelled. The animals started spreading out, but the people rebelled. You just went through a worldwide flood. <laughs> Do you not remember that? And now you're rebelling already against God. So God says we're going to confuse their language and force them to spread out, which is what God wanted. And so they were forced to spread out. And this is a secular map of, they think, of how civilization started. It started in this general area, which is what the Bible says. And it spread this way. And there were natural land bridges right after the Ice Age. Oceans were lower. You could walk across on land and get to all the continents that way. And then as the ice melts and the oceans rise up again, some of the land bridges are underwater. And so now animals are kind of trapped. People could build ships and they could build it and bring animals back and forth. But a lot of the animals are trapped wherever they were at that point. But this secular map actually explains very clearly what the Bible said with the Tower of Babel. It's, it explains so many things, including the origin of, quote, races. There are no races on the planet. There's one race, the human race. We're all of one blood. The book of Acts tells us that, and that's what we see genetically. There are people groups, and the Bible explains that too. That's a whole another talk, so i got to keep going. <laughs> We're never going to get through the end of it. So this was part one. From creation up to about the time of the flood and Tower of Babel and Ice Age, roughly 2000 B.C., we are going to now get to the part that's a little busier from roughly 2000 B.C., up to Christ. And that's where there's a lot more happening, and most of which you're somewhat familiar with. So we're going to jump into that really quickly, and it will go quick. We have the call of, of a man named Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. So God forces all these people to spread out and fill the earth. So they're going out and they're all over. They are, at this point, random people. But remember, God had a plan. Genesis 3.15, he's going to send his own son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. That plan is being played out through the Old Testament. So now you got all these random people, but we know that God chooses a group of people through which his son, the Messiah, would be born. He chooses the Hebrew people, become the Israelites and the Jews. So he's going to do that starting now. So he's got just random people all over. He says, okay, Abraham, you're the guy that's kicking this whole thing off. Through your descendants, the Messiah is going to come. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. That's that thread. So we have Abraham living down here in southern Iraq. And if we change it to a more ancient map, he's living in the land of Ur. God says, trust me, go up here to Haran temporarily. And then he goes over to Canaan, which is where Israel is. That's the promised land, you know. Abraham didn't really know, oh, great, this is a promised land, but eventually that's what it was going to be, where all the Israelites would be. So that was the call of Abraham in around, roughly 1921 B.C. So God's got his plan started here. And then you probably know the story of Abraham and the two sons he had, Ishmael and Isaac. Round one with Abraham. Abraham was 86 years old. His wife Sarah was 77 and God promised him a son, and Abraham said, well, we're really old, so God can't do this on his own. He needs help. So Abraham said, you know, I know, Sarah, you're too old to have children, so I'm going to have a child through your hand, made in Hagar, because that was very common during those times. If the wife couldn't have a child, the wife, the wife would give the handmaiden to the husband to keep the children and keep the line going. So Abraham thought God needed help, and so they had a son, Ishmael, via Hagar, the handmaiden. Was that the promised one that God mentioned? No, it was not, and it caused a lot of problems. So round two comes later. Now Abraham's even older, 100 years old. Sarah's 91, and they have another son, Isaac, and yes, he's the promised one. This was the miraculous one, even though they're much older now. God steps in to do that, which leads to something very interesting. If you went to like Walmart later today or whatever and found a random person who maybe doesn't go to church much and you say, all this conflict in the Middle East, you know, like, how do they get started? 
they would probably say, I no idea. They've just been fighting forever. Guess what? The Bible explains why that started in Galatians chapter 4. It's talking about Abraham and the two sons that he had. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondmaiden, Ishmael. That was the first son that they weren't supposed to do that one. And the other by the free woman, his wife, Sarah. That son was named Isaac. But he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born after the flesh, their own efforts. But he of the free woman, the son Isaac, was the promise of God. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, that was born after, he that was born after the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him that was born after the spirit, Isaac. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, Ishmael. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman, Isaac. So because Abraham jumped the gun and tried to help out God, that son persecuted the son of the promise, and there's been conflict ever since with the Arabs and Israelis. And it won't end until Christ returns and has a final solution for that. So that was Ishmael and Isaac on the timeline. I and I, Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac. Then Isaac that we're following, he has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they're actually twins. And Jacob is the one that God works through, and God actually changes his name to Israel. So when you think of Israel today, yes, you can think of a nation and promised people, but it's really a guy, Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. Um, And then Jacob has 12 sons. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob. As we're familiar with that phrase here. And at this point, we seem a long, long ways away from that original creation thing. That God did the creation thing in six days. That just seems like 50 billion years ago. Now here we are talking about Abraham. We can relate to a little bit more. It really wasn't that long ago. And the Bible is so tightly knitted. This is phenomenal, phenomenal visual. You don't have to be able to read all this. But these are the generally the patriarchs and how long they lived. So here you have Adam. He lived 930 years, and yes, they lived to be 900 years old. I can't go into the genetics of that right now, but it's fascinating. So it shows you how long people live. So this is Adam, and then way up here we finish with Jacob, who we're talking about right now. So you have Adam, who's still alive when Lamech is around. Lamech is Noah's dad. So Noah's dad could have been talking to Adam, all about the Garden of Eden and how perfect it was and the fellowship they had. And then Adam tells Noah's dad, yeah, we, we messed it up and got kicked out, and that's why things are so bad now. So Noah's dad is learning that firsthand from Adam. And then Noah is still alive when Abraham is around. So God calls Abraham, says, through you, the world is going to be blessed. Abraham could have been talking to Noah who went through the flood, whose own dad met Adam. And he's conveying all that all the way up to Abraham. And then Shem, one of the three sons on the ark, is still around when Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Jacob. Jacob can be talking to one of the sons who was on the ark, whose own grandpa met Adam and talked to him. It is so tightly put together. It's not these stories that get lost over time and distorted. No, it is so tightly knitted. It is just, it's phenomenal. So 12 tribes of Israel. There are two in particular that people are more familiar with, Judah, Christ is the Lion of Judah, so Christ came through this lineage, but Joseph is also someone people are familiar with. So very quickly, the story of Joseph. His brothers, 11 brothers, were jealous of him, so they sold him to slave traders, take him into Egypt, but God favored him, and Joseph rises to second in power over all Egypt. You, You know that story. Well, how did the Israelites become slaves in Egypt? This is another thing that Christians are like, like, I never thought about that. They just, we know they were slaves for a long time, and then Moses frees them, and I don't know. This is how that happened. There was a new sheriff in town. So Joseph, who we're talking about, gets sold as a slave, and he rises to second in power over all Egypt. The Pharaoh loved Joseph, and he said to Joseph, hey, bring your family. Bring them from Canaan, bring them into Egypt. We'll give them the best land here, and he did that. And his family and descendants start growing and growing. Well, later there was a new sheriff in town, a new pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph. And he's looking at this group of people. He's like, who who are these people over there living in the best land? There's an awful lot of them. And this is what the Bible says about that. Exodus chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. So the new pharaoh's like, "I I don't really know who this Joseph guy was, and who are these people? And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. 
Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. So the new Pharaoh says, all these Israelites, Joseph's brothers and family, all that, we're putting them into slavery so they can't rebel against us. So that's how the Israelites became slaves for about 400 years. So we have the period of slavery here. And then Moses, again, we're familiar with the story of Moses. God raises him up. So we'll talk about Moses and his resume a little bit here. He starts out as a, a basket case. Sorry about that. <laughs> I know. Um, he's spared by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as Pharaoh's son, technically grandson in a sense, adopted grandson, but he's raised there in the palace. He eventually kills an Egyptian. There was an Egyptian beating a, a Hebrew and Israelite you know, slave. So uh, Moses kills him, and then he realizes they're going to kill me for killing him, so he flees to the wilderness for 40 years, and God works in his life for 40 years. He's tending obstinate sheep. <laughs> Later, when he leads the Israelites, he's got obstinate sheep again, so he's, he's being trained for all that. He's called by God through that burning bush, and he confronts Pharaoh with the ten plagues. Uh, Pharaoh eventually lets him go, and, and they capture him, or they, they confront him by the Red Sea. God allows the Red Sea to be parted by um, Charlton Heston, and uh, sorry, <laughs> and then he re- and they get to the other side. Moses receives and then gives the Ten Commandments to the people, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, which was very interesting. So that was the raising up of Moses to get the people out of slavery in Egypt. That leads us to talking about entering into the promised land. It was interesting. It was only an 11-day journey, a week-and-a-half journey that could have gone from slavery in Egypt right into the promised land. They could have been there a week and a half later. Why did they wander for 40 years? I, we're doing some experiments now, and we realize that the cell phone connections were really weak, and they didn't have GPS on their phones, and they, so, they were just all over the place. No, they were told to go and spy out this promised land. God says, I give it to you. Go and check it out. So they sent 12 spies out. Uh, two came back. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. This is, you know, God's given it to us. Ten spies said, there's no way we can do this. There are giants in the land. They were frightened and fearful of that. So God then caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So everyone 20 years old on up died out. They were not allowed to go into the promised land. Only the younger generation was allowed to go in, in addition to Joshua and Caleb. Moses didn't even get to go in because of his rebellion. So major events when they get into that promised land, uh, there was a battle of Jericho. When they got into the promised land, it wasn't empty, just sitting waiting for them. There were people living there. And so they had to fight battles to take over this land. God didn't just say, hey, just go in there. I know there are people living there. We just wipe them out. I don't care about them. That's what you know, skeptics say. Oh, yeah, nice. They're going in there and killing men, women, and babies and all that. And it's awful. you got to know the context. The Israelites were in, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years as God was developing them as a people, as his people. They were just random people in a sense, but God wanted to develop them as a nation. And when you're under persecution, you bond together very well. So he's building those people as his people in an actual nation who wasn't a nation before. So during that 400 years, they're being developed as a nation. And during the 400 years, God is being very patient with all the people in Canaan, in the promised land. You had um, the Canaanites who were sacrificing their children to you know, Ra, the sun god, and throwing them in the fire. They were doing hideous things, just awful. And God was patient with them, allowing them time to repent. And he waited and waited and waited. Eventually, God says, I'm not going to wait forever. I gave you plenty of time. Time is up. It is time for your judgment. Just like God judged the earth with the flood, God says, okay, you Canaanites and other civilizations, it's time for your judgment. And the way I'm going to do it? I'm going to bring my people into your land. I'm going to use them as your judgment. It's not that they're just coming in, oh, we want the land now. No, it's time for judgment, and God can do it any way he wants. He happened to use this group of people, the Israelites, to go in there and do that. The Battle of Jericho was just the first of many battles that they went through. Again, I just explained this, uh, the, all the violence, you got to put it in context. Most of that violence happened during this period where these people were being judged for their long history of sin. It wasn't willy-nilly just strewn throughout the Old Testament with no reason. The people that were judged, there was good reason to judge them. The period of the judges now, they, they're in the land and taking different, different areas, and God was ultimately their ruler, but he raised up judges to kind of organize them during that period of time, and Gideon and Samson are two that you're probably familiar with. The last verse in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. That is a recipe for disaster. 
Everyone does what they thought was right, and it was really bad during that time period. They went through these cycles of disobedience, actually 17 of them. They would backslide, rebel against God, and then God would discipline them, usually bringing an outside nation to attack them. And then they say, oh, we're so sorry, and they repent, we'll never ever do that again. God rises up a military leader or a judge to deliver them. And then they backslide again, and then they get disciplined again, and then there's, let me back up, and then they, they repent again, and they go th- 17 cycles of these. I think seven are detailed in the Bible, but there are 17 cycles. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're much better than that, right? No, I, I don't want my number up there. It's probably much higher than 17. We always well, say, okay, I'll never do it again, and then you do it again. And so, but this is what was going on during that period of the judges in uh, the Old Testament. So then we move from that into from theocracy to monarchy. So they were being ruled by God, even though they had judges, and they were complaining and whining. We want a king like all the other nations around us have, because the kings go out and fight their battles and all that. God says, no, trust me, you don't want that. Yes, we want it. No, trust me, you don't want it. Yes, we want it. God even says, if I give you a king, these are all the things that are going to happen, bad things. We don't care. We want a king. So God says, okay, Samuel, the last judge, he goes, you, you appoint a king. So they go into the period of the kings, three major kings. We start out with uh, Samuel appointing Saul as king, who ended up reigning for 40 years. He actually started out kind of strong, good military leader, but he went south kind of fast and ended basically committing suicide. God took the kingdom from his lineage and gave it to David. You know the story of you know David and Goliath and God working with David to become king. Uh, David ruled for 40 years. David was a pretty good ruler, messed up royally, but he repented sincerely. And God said he was a man after God's own heart. Even though he was imperfect like we are, then God gave the kingdom to his son Solomon, who reigned for 40 years as well. So those are the three major kings of the nation of Israel. During Solomon's reign, he was allowed to build the temple. David wanted to build it. God says, no, you shed too much blood. I'm going to let your son Solomon build it. So Solomon builds the temple during his 40 years. And then something major happens So we have this united kingdom of Israel, the the 12 tribes. They're all one nation. They had three kings here. But because of Solomon's sins, God says, I'm allowing your kingdom to be divided. But out of respect for your dad, the former King David, I'm not going to divide the kingdom during your reign, Solomon. But afterwards, it's being divided, and that's what happened to the northern and southern kingdom. There are ten tribes you know, were in the northern kingdom. They retained the name Israel. Two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was smaller, so they just called it Judah. This is geographically where they split. And here are the details of those kingdoms. The northern kingdom lasted 250 years. had 19 kings that were all bad, and their capitals in Samaria. Southern kingdom lasted 400 years. He had 19 kings and one queen. Some of the kings were good. Most of them were bad. The queen was particularly bad. And their captain, ca- uh, capital was in Jerusalem. So that's the divided kingdom here after Solomon's reign. And then we have the fall of each of these two kingdoms. First, the fall of the northern kingdom. They fall to the nation of Assyria after 250 years of existence. The southern kingdom falls after 400 years to Babylon. That's where you have Daniel being deported in Babylon and Daniel in the lion's den. All that goes on during that. It was a 70-year captivity. Um, Then you have the return to Jerusalem. So that northern kingdom, they last 250 years. They get taken over by Assyria, and some just kind of assimilate into Assyria. And after all that, some of them just kind of wander off. They never came back together again as a nation, the people from the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom, after 70 years in Babylon, some stayed right there in Babylon with pagan worship, some took off, went somewhere else, but a remnant, a small portion of those that were in captivity in the southern kingdom returned to Jerusalem to reestablish the temple and the walls around the temple with Nehemiah and reestablish their worship of the one true God. So this is a very small percentage of God's chosen people that returned to Jerusalem. Really interesting bit, too. God was going to choose a group of people. He chooses Abraham's descendants, which we call the Hebrews. The Hebrews become the Israelites because God changed Jacob's name to Israel. We also call them Jews. Why do we get Hebrews, Israelites, Jews? Well, they were returning from mainly the tribe of Judah to Jerusalem. That's where the the term Jews comes from. Then you have 400 years of silence after all that history, and they're returning to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple and all that. God's not communicating with them anymore. He had given them all these prophets during a lot of these, these latter times here. Um, 
No more, because they were killing the prophets. So God says, you've had enough revelation. You're going to have to sit and wait and trust, look for this Messiah. So for about 400 years, there's no revelation coming from God, no new revelation until Christ shows up at zero. During that period of 400 years, we call it the intertestamental period because it's in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are four main periods that are depicted by Daniel and this image. Uh, the Babylonians fell. The Babylonians were the head of gold. They fell to the Persians, which Daniel predicted. Medo-Persians and the Medo-Persians fell to the Greeks. Then there was a brief period of independence, and then they're taken over by Rome. Daniel predicted all this. How hundreds of years in advance do you predict the succession of nations unless God is giving you that information? So again, proof of inspiration of Scripture. So when Jesus shows up, Romans in charge. We we know that the Romans were around. So that's the 400 years of silence, and that's the thread that goes all the way through the Old Testament. We mess up, God says, I got a plan, and the entire Old Testament is just carrying that plan out. And those are all the major events. Is there more detail? Yeah, a lot more. But at least you know the big picture. Now I'm going to do a super quick visual review of the whole thing that comes out of this book that I think is out of print now. So God creates everything, including Adam and Eve, and they're perfect, but they sin, they fall, they separate themselves from God, and the curse comes in, but then God says, i got a plan, I'm going to send my son to die on a cross. And then you have the story of Cain and Abel, and Adam and Eve have Seth as a replacement for Abel, who was killed by Cain. They multiply, and they just get really, really, really evil. (laughs) And it's so bad that God says, I'm going to send a flood, so he spares no one his family. Through the flood, they come off the ark, you have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, which are supposed to spread out, but they don't. They build this tower, partially because they're thinking, well, their flood came. If we have this tall tower, we can go up the top of the tower, and the flood won't affect us. That's probably one of the reasons they were trying to build it so high. So they build this tower, and God confuses their language, uh, which forces them to spread out. So we kind of know where each of the, the suns kind of populated as it spread out across the planet. We know a lot of that from genetics today. It's pretty fascinating. Out of all those random people then that spread out, God says, okay, Abraham, you're my guy. Through him, he has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, 12 sons of Israel. And then we have Judah that the line of Christ comes through. But we also have um, Joseph, then you know that story, that eventually they all go into Egypt and they become slaves in Egypt. Then God raises up Moses to get them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. He goes to Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments. And they wander the wilderness for 40 years. Eventually Joshua and Caleb take him over into the promised land here. They have that period of judges for a while. It doesn't go well. Then they get Saul appointed as king 40 years, David 40 years, Solomon 40 years. The end of Solomon's reign, God allows that kingdom to be divided into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was led by a a military leader named Jeroboam, southern kingdom by Rehoboam, which is actually Solomon's son. They last 250 years, get taken to captivity in Syria. Afterwards, they just disperse and go all over the place. The southern kingdom lasts for uh, 400 years, get taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. When they get released, a small remnant then returns to Jerusalem. You have a lot of the prophets prophesying during that return, and then you have 400 years of silence. <laughs> so that's the entire Old Testament in just a couple minutes. Here's a timeline that I showed you to begin with, with the, the things I had, just I happen to number them this way. If we put these in the proper order and put the numbers up on the timeline, it ends up looking like that. That's really where all these events, events one, take a picture of it, or I think I have a graphic of this on my, our website is too. You could download the PDF that I put together, but it's kind of interesting. Now uh, you've seen it all, but at first the numbers probably would have been all over the place. So that's creation to Christ in a nutshell. It makes a little bit more sense as to why Christ came when he did in the fullness of time. It's the perfect timing. There's a whole other talk as to why the time that Christ came was actually perfect and Romans build roads that you could get the message out and on and on and on. It's God's perfect timing, why Christ came when he did, why he died on that cross, because now you know a little bit of the history of that. I just wrote a book. It came out last week. Creation to Christ, the Old Testament in a nutshell. It's this whole thing that you just saw in written form, the timeline on there. I keep it brief. I don't go into too much detail, but all along the way, I answer a lot of other questions that we put in 17 appendices, and so you can also learn about where the dinosaurs fit in, and that Ice Age, and the Nephilim, the what? (laughs) I'm not saying something looked like that, I just, this is a creature to get your attention. But Genesis chapter 6 talks about these Nephilim, these giants that were in the land. It's just, it's so bizarre, it's like, God, why did you put that in there? (laughs) must have happened, and so a friend of mine wrote a whole book 
it's called the fallen. It's really cool about the Nephilim, and there's a lot you can learn about these Nephilim, but I got to keep moving. But all those things are answered in appendices. Why did we have these strange dietary laws? Did people really live that long? Is there evidence for Adam and Eve? All those are in 17 appendices in the back. Um, so really quick, the resources that we have out there, including that book, everything we have is available at the booth or the table out there, and everything is also streamable. There are 11 physical DVDs, but they have 22 video sessions on them, and my daughter is in the process of finishing up study guides for every single video session, and uh, and then the three books. This came out a week ago. This came out three months ago, and then that one's been out. The Creation Evolution's been out for a while. We have a one of everything. If you get the physical DVDs, we throw in the streaming for free, and when we do New streaming videos, which I'll be doing, 22 more. Those get thrown in for free as well. We have a free email newsletter. You can sign up on the table for that. We've also done live stream broadcasts. Those are all archived on our website. You can watch different topics. A monthly newsletter that comes out, question of the month that I write, and then a speaking request form. If you want me to speak somewhere else, you can fill that out, um, and we can maybe help you with that. So the website for any questions in the future, um, thestartingpointproject.com. We've covered a lot. <laughs> really, really fast, and you're not expected to remember all that, but hopefully you'll say, wow, the Old Testament isn't really all that confusing, and it's not this black box that you know nothing about. It's, it's just one story, no stuff happening, but everything's interlinked, and it makes sense, all building to the arrival of Jesus Christ, his death on a cross, which we're celebrating you know, this Friday, and then even better, the resurrection on Sunday. So, so next week when Pastor Bob's here, you're like, oh, okay, now I understand more like why that was going on, and it will help you share your faith with others. I'll close with this. Today we're living in a world that's just upside down. I mean, seriously, it's always been getting worse morally slightly. You know, it's just getting kind of worse and worse, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, about two years ago, it just, the wheels fell off and went upside down, and we were dealing with so many issues with transgenderism and gay marriage and cancel culture and woke culture and settled science and COVID and climate change and on and on and on and on and on. The depressing thing is we can't fix that. We can't. The good news is God's not asking us to fix those things. He's saying, share the gospel. And the worse things get in this world, the easier it should be to share your faith because we're the only ones that have hope, which is Jesus Christ. It's not in solving climate change, which is a whole other talk. Um, it's not in fixing those things. It's about introducing people to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, these other things just fall by the wayside because they get it. Like, okay, I understand why those things are incorrect because it goes against God's created order. Um, so be looking for opportunities to share your faith. Don't even go out and argue with Old Testament history or carbon-14 dating or dinosaurs. Share the gospel. And if they ask you tough questions about carbon-14 dating or violence in the Bible, you can say, you know what? I know answers exist. I can't think of them right away, but I will get back to you. But if I get back to you, will I be willing to hear more about Jesus Christ? If they say no, they're not serious. If they say yes, you get your homework cut out for you. So uh, I will close in a word of prayer. I look forward to seeing you in the lobby afterwards. Or if is it open, the restaurant thing open to anyone? Or no. Ah. Yeah, no? Just, okay, we got a private group going there. You didn't hear me say that. <laughs> Ignore the last two sentences. Uh, I'll close in prayer. Dearly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that we've had to take a look at the big picture of your word. Thank you for laying it out so clearly for us. Pray that each person here would be encouraged to study it for themselves and see that and you would just open their eyes. And it just is so exciting when you see how things fit in, how reasonable it is, and how significant it is to our lives even today in sharing the gospel with the lost and dying world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.